Chapter 7 Transcending Locality The Emergence of the Cyber Economy The real issue is control. The Internet is too widespread to be easily dominated by any single government. By creating a seamless global economic zone, anti-sovereign and unregulatable, the Internet calls into question the very idea of a nation-state. John Perry Barlow The information superhighway has become one of the more familiar metaphors of the early days of the digital age. It is remarkable not only for its pervasiveness, but also for the common misunderstanding it betrays about the cyber economy. A highway, after all, is an industrial version of a footpath, a network for the physical transit of people and goods. The information economy is not like a highway, a railroad, or a pipeline. It does not haul or transport information from point to point the way the Trans-Canada Highway carries heavy trucks from Alberta to New Brunswick. What the world calls the information superhighway is not merely a transit link. It is the destination. Cyberspace transcends locality. It involves nothing less than the instantaneous sharing of data everywhere and nowhere at once. The emerging information economy is based in the interconnections linking and relinking millions of users of millions of computers. Its essence lies in the new possibilities that arise from these connections. As John Perry Barlow put it, what the net offers is the promise of a new social space, global and anti-sovereign, within which anybody, anywhere, can express to the rest of humanity whatever he or she believes without fear. There is in these new media a foreshadowing of the intellectual and economic liberty that might undo all the authoritarian powers on Earth. Cyberspace, like the imaginary realm of Homer's gods, is a realm apart from the familiar terrestrial world of farm and factory. Yet its consequences will not be imaginary, but real. To a far greater extent than many now understand, the instantaneous sharing of information will be like a solvent dissolving large institutions. It will not only alter the logic of violence, as we have already explored. It will radically alter information and transaction costs that determine how businesses organize and the way the economy functions. We expect microprocessing to change the economic organization of the world. It is today possible, to a greater extent than at any time in the world's history, for a company to locate anywhere, to use resources from anywhere to produce a product that can be sold anywhere. Milton Friedman The Tyranny of Place The fact that the fading industrial era's first stab at conceiving the information economy is to think of it in terms of a gigantic public works project tells you how grounded our thinking is in the paradigms of the past. It is rather like hearing farmers at the end of the 18th century describe a factory as a farm with a roof. Yet the superhighway metaphor is more revealing than that. It also betrays the extent to which we are hostage to the tyranny of place. Even when technology enables us to transcend locality, the instrument of our deliverance is given a nickname describing it as a route from place to place. Like salmon marked by their homing instinct, our consciousness is still deeply etched by notions of locality.
for the whole of history until now, economies have been tethered to a local geographic area. Most people who lived before the 20th century passed their days like de facto prisoners under house arrest, seldom venturing more than a few days' walk from where they were born. A journey of any distance was the work of generations. Only occasionally did some crisis, war, pestilence, and adverse shift in climate stimulate a broad migration. To move human beings out of a wretched village required something spectacular and pressing. Nothing less could stimulate people to bundle up their belongings and wander off in search of a better life. Until recently, the few who looked outside their own locale for opportunity often became famous. Consider that Marco Polo is still renowned for having traipsed the Eurasian continent to visit the court of the Great Khan. He was the exception in his time. Few other travelogues survive from the pre-modern period. Among the more widely read, Mandeville's Travels, written in French in 1357, is notable for having been composed by someone who probably never left Europe. Mandeville conveys delightful and often fanciful details about life around the globe, including the suggestion that many Ethiopians have only one foot. The foot is so large that it shadoweth all the body against the sun when they will lie and rest them. Clearly, few of Mandeville's contemporaries who read his popular story were likely to have known that his Ethiopian Bigfoot did not exist. Not until the modern age began, with the journeys of exploration at the very end of the 15th century, were there sustained contacts between the continents. Intrepid captains like Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama, who set out to capture the spice trade, were extraordinary enough to be remembered in every literate household for the better part of five centuries. From the advent of farming until recent generations, life was characterized by its immobility. This is all but forgotten today, particularly in the European settlement colonies of the New World, where movement is more fluid and everyone tends to draw his perspective from the vantage point of an immigrant. A theme of elementary education in North America is that the colonists came from Europe seeking freedom and opportunity, which is true. What is seldom told, however, is how reluctant most people were to take the trip, even when faced with destitution at home. The few who did migrate suffered what are in today's terms unimaginable ordeals to establish themselves. Only the most enterprising, or the most desperate of the poor, came. In the middle of the 17th century, inmates locked up in Bridewell, London's notorious house of correction, revolted to show their unwillingness to go to Virginia. In 1720, there were riots in the streets of Paris to free vagabonds, thieves, and murderers scheduled for deportation to Louisiana. Narrow Horizons Physical difficulties of communication and transport, compounded at most times and places by limited language skills, kept the focus of human action narrow and local. As recently as the early 20th century, it was common to find Chinese villages lying only five miles apart speaking mutually unintelligible dialects, even along the coast. The local organization of almost all economies imposed a penalty of narrow markets and lost opportunity. 
Factor costs were kept high due to limited competition. Access to specialized skills was minimal. With incomes so low, they scraped the margins of destitution, and no access to outside capital or efficient insurance markets, small farmers in much of the world were trapped in poverty. We've explored some of the difficulties imposed upon peasants by the confines of closed village life. Even now, as we write, at least a billion people, mostly in Asia and Africa, struggle to survive on less than a dollar a day. All politics is local. To a greater extent than is commonly realized, the immobility of people and their assets has informed the way we see the world. Even those who seem most ready to agree that the earth is a small place as the 20th century ends continue to think in terms constrained by antiquated concepts of industrial politics. This is underscored by a slogan that became popular among environmentalists in the 1980s. Think globally, but act locally. It is an injunction that mirrors the logic of politics, a logic that has always turned on local power advantages. The local habit of mind has been dictated by the megapolitics of all past societies. All topographical features that serve as barriers or facilitators to the exercise of power are local. Every river, every mountain, every island is local. Climate is local. Temperature, rainfall, and growing conditions vary as you climb up and over a mountain. Every microbe that circulates circulates somewhere and not in some other place. Little wonder that the tyranny of place permeates our concepts of how society must organize and function. The power advantages that have given one group or another a local monopoly on violence have heretofore always originated someplace and faded along the megapolitical margins where borders are drawn. That is why there has never been a world government. While the importance of place to the exercise of power has rarely been made explicit, some advocates of compulsion to redistribute the rewards of human action began to sense the declining leverage of place as long ago as the 1930s. They saw, in modern transportation, a division of social space between the highly paid and the poor. This fear was captured by John Dos Passos in The Big Money. The vag sits on the edge of the highway, broken, hungry, Overhead flies a transcontinental plane filled with highly paid executives. The upper class has taken to the air, the lower class to the road. There is no longer any bond between them. They are two nations. This is another way of saying that improved transportation reduced the leverage of extortion simply by increasing the choice of places where successful persons might choose to be. Certainly, the vagabond on the road below was in no position to press for a handout from those flying overhead. The tendencies that Dos Passos observed 60 years ago have only become more pronounced. Mass Transit In 1995, a million persons crossed borders somewhere in the world each day. This represents a startling change from the past. Before the 20th century, travel was so infrequent that most borders were simply frontiers, not barriers to transit. Passports were unknown. 
The development of ocean liners, trains, and other improved forms of transportation dramatically increased movement. But this movement became more heavily regulated by states whose powers were increased by the same improvements in transportation and communications that made civilian travel cheaper and easier. The advent of movies, and especially television, also did a great deal to open horizons and stimulate travel and immigration. Yet until now, the bedrock assumptions of social and economic organization have remained anchored in locality. To avoid that failure of nerve for which history exacts so merciless a penalty, we must have the courage to follow all technical extrapolations to their logical conclusion. Arthur C. Clarke The Error of Minimal Expectations The geographic tether on imagination is still so tight that some experts examining the Internet in 1995 concluded that it has little commercial potential and almost no significance other than as an electronic medium for chat and an outlet for pornography. The many doubters of the economic importance of cyberspace are the kernel blimps of the information age. Their complacency rivals that of the British establishment facing the decline of the empire in the 1930s. Whenever elites find themselves threatened, their first reaction is denial. This is evidenced by the fond hope that the Internet will never amount to much, sometimes endorsed by authorities who should know better. We referred earlier to David Klein and Daniel Burstein's work, Road Warriors, Dreams and Nightmares Along the Information Highway. Their dismissal of the economic potential of the net is another proof that being technically well-informed is not synonymous with understanding the consequences of technology. Even the most technically expert observers in the past have frequently failed to grasp the implications of new technologies. A British parliamentary committee convened in 1878 to consider the prospects for Thomas Edison's incandescent lamp reported Edison's ideas to be good enough for our transatlantic friends, but unworthy of the attention of practical or scientific men. Thomas Edison himself was a man of great vision, but he thought that the phonograph he invented would be employed mainly by businessmen for dictation. Only a short time before the Wright brothers proved that airplanes would fly, the distinguished American astronomer Simon Newcomb authoritatively demonstrated why heavier-than-air flight was impossible. He concluded... The demonstration that no possible combination of known substances, known forms of machinery, and known forms of force can be united in a practical machine by which men shall fly long distances through the air seems to the writer as complete as it is possible for the demonstration of any physical fact to be. Soon after airplanes began to fly, another renowned astronomer, William H. Pickering, explained to the public why commercial travel would never get off the ground. The popular mind often pictures gigantic flying machines speeding across the Atlantic and carrying innumerable passengers in a way analogous to our modern steamships. It is clear that with our present devices, there is no hope of competing for racing speed with either our locomotives or our automobiles. We have previously recalled another wildly inaccurate prophecy about the potential of a new technology— the forecast from the beginning of the 20th century by the makers of Mercedes that there would never be more than a million automobiles worldwide. 
Again, they knew more about automobiles than almost anyone, but they could not have been more wrong in estimating the impact of autos on society. Given this tradition of clueless misunderstandings, it is hardly surprising that many observers are slow to grasp the most important implications of the new information technology. The fact that it transcends the tyranny of place. The new technology creates for the first time an infinite non-terrestrial realm for economic activity. It opens an option to explore the new frontiers of the cyber economy, to think globally and act globally. This chapter explains why. Beyond Locality the processing and use of information is rapidly replacing and modifying physical products as the most important source of profit. This has major consequences. Information technology divorces income-earning potential from residents in any specific geographic location. Since a greater and greater portion of the value of products and services will be created by adding ideas and knowledge to the product, an ever smaller component of value added will be subject to capture within local jurisdictions. Ideas can be formulated anywhere and transmitted globally at the speed of light. This inevitably means that the information economy will be dramatically different from the economy of the factory age. We would concede to the critics that a recital of the tasks you could have undertaken through the Internet in 1998 might seem mundane. There is, after all, nothing terribly revolutionary about reading an article about gardening on the net or buying a case of wine long distance. However, the potential of the cyber economy cannot be judged solely on its early beginnings any more than the potential of the automobile to transform society could have been judged by what you could have seen around you in 1900. We expect the cyber economy to evolve through several stages. 1. The most primitive manifestations of the information age involve the net simply as an information medium to facilitate what are otherwise ordinary industrial-era transactions. At this point, the net is no more than an exotic delivery system for catalogs. Virtual Vineyards, for example, one of the first cyber merchants, simply sells wine from a page on the World Wide Web. Such transactions are not yet directly subversive of the old institutions, they employ industrial currency and take place within identifiable jurisdictions. These uses of the Internet have little such megapolitical impact. 2. An intermediate stage of Internet commerce will employ information technology in ways that would have been impossible in the industrial era, such as in long-distance accounting or medical diagnosis. More examples of these new applications of advanced computational power are spelled out below. The second stage of net commerce will still function within the old institutional framework, employing national currencies and submitting to the jurisdiction of nation-states. The merchants who employ the net for sales will not yet employ it to bank their profits, only to earn revenues. These profits made on Internet transactions will still be subject to taxation. Three. A more advanced stage will mark the transition to true cyber commerce. Not only will transactions occur over the net, but they will migrate outside the jurisdiction of nation-states. Payment will be rendered in cyber currency. Profits will be booked in cyber banks. 
investments will be made in cyber brokerages. Many transactions will not be subject to taxation. At this stage, cyber commerce will begin to have significant megapolitical consequences of the kind we have already outlined. The powers of governments over traditional areas of the economy will be transformed by the new logic of the net. Extraterritorial regulatory power will collapse. Jurisdictions will devolve. The structure of firms will change, and so will the nature of work and employment. This outline of the stages of the information revolution is only the barest sketch of what could be the most far-reaching economic transformation ever. The Globalization of Commerce In the information age, most current jurisdictional advantages will be eroded rapidly by technology. New types of advantages will emerge. Falling communications costs have already reduced the need for proximity as a necessary condition of doing business. In 1946, it was technically possible for an investor in London to place an order with a broker in New York, but only the largest and most compelling transaction would have justified doing so. A three-minute phone call between New York and London costs $650. Today it costs 91 cents. The price of an intercontinental phone call has plunged by more than 99% in half a century. Convergent Communication Soon, the difference between intercontinental chat and a local call may be minimal. So, too, may be the differences among your telephone, your computer, and your television. All will be interactive communications devices, more easily distinguished on ergonomic than functional grounds. You will be able to hold a voice conversation over the Internet using microphones and speakers on your personal computer. Or watch a movie you will be able to talk back to your television and communicate vast amounts of data through the network provided by the television entertainment media. As the industrial era distinction between various forms of communication breaks down and costs plunge, more and more services will bill you by time of use rather than according to the destination of your messages. Conversation or data transmission anywhere in the world will cost little more than a local call did in most jurisdictions in 1985. Internet Unwired Low-orbit satellites and other approaches to wireless technology will transmit feeds back and forth directly to a beeper in your pocket, a portable computer, or a workstation without interfacing with a local telephone operating or TV cable system at all. In short, the Internet will be unwired. The first steps in that direction are bound to be halting because of the relatively slow speed of data transmission in the early wireless media and the difficulties of hearing weak signals broadcast from subscriber devices, some of which will be mobile and battery-powered. Nonetheless, these technical problems will be tackled and solved as bandwidth increases. Business Without Borders Continued expansion of computational power will lead to better compression technology, speeding data flow. Widespread adoption of existing public-key, private-key encryption algorithms will allow providers, such as satellite systems, to incorporate the billing function into the service, lowering costs. Simultaneous with the service, vendors will be able to debit accounts loaded on personal computers in much the way that France Telecom debits the smart cards employed in Paris phone boxes.
your phone becomes a bank. The difference is that in the near future, you will be able to earn credits to your account with all manner of transactions and carry your phone box with you. Your PC will be the branch office of your bank and global money brokerage, as well as the equivalent of the Paris kiosk where you buy your anonymous phone card. And, like the smart card payphones that are useless to thieves if broken open with a crowbar, your computer could only be raided by someone capable of breaking or manipulating sophisticated computer code. That would leave out a lot of ruffians capable of manipulating a crowbar. With proper encryption, nothing in your computer could be deciphered or misused. By the turn of the millennium, you will be able to transact business almost anywhere north of Antarctica. Anywhere wired or digital cellular telephone is available. Anywhere interactive cable television systems are in use. Anywhere a satellite is overhead or other wireless transmission systems are in place. You will be able to speak, transmit data, and journey via virtual reality over borders and boundaries at will. Telephone numbers that identify the locale of the speaker by area codes are likely to be superseded by universal access numbers, which will reach the party with whom you wish to communicate anywhere on the planet. Witness Iridium. Understanding Chinese. You will not only be able to talk and send a fax. In time, you will be able to shorten a multi-year learning process and converse in Chinese with a factory foreman in Shanghai. It will no longer matter as much that you do not speak his language or dialect. His words may be in Chinese, but you will hear them roughly translated into English. He will hear your conversation in Chinese. In time, the capacity to employ instantaneous translation will significantly increase competition in regions where obstacles of language and idiom have heretofore been significant. When that happens, it will matter little, or not at all, that the Chinese government may not wish the call to be placed. Customized Media As the world grows closer together, you will have a greater opportunity than at any time in history to customize your particular place in it. Even the information you receive on a regular basis from the media will be information of your choosing. The mass media will become the individualized media. If you are interested in chess, above all else, or are a keen cat fancier, you will be able to program your evening news broadcast to feature information important to you about cats or chess. No longer will you be at the mercy of Dan Rather or the BBC for the news that reaches you. You will be able to select news compiled and edited according to your instructions. From Mass to Customized Production If the news is slow, you can access a virtual catalog on the World Wide Web. If you see a pair of trousers that you almost like, you can adjust the width of the cuff when you place your order. It will be custom-cut and tailored to fit your body by robots in Malaysia from photographs scanned into your computer and transmitted through the net. Cyberbroking You will be able to use cyber money to make investments as well as pay for services and products. If you live in a jurisdiction like the United States that heavily regulates your investment options, you can choose to domicile your activities in a jurisdiction that permits the freedom to pursue a full range of investment options. 
Whether you live in Cleveland or Belo Horizonte, you can do your investment business in Bermuda, the Cayman Islands, Rio de Janeiro, or Buenos Aires. Wherever you find yourself, the use of digital resources will widen as the cyber economy evolves. You will be able to employ expert systems to help select your investments and cyber accountants and bookkeepers to monitor the progress of your holdings on a real-time basis. Virtual Culture When you're not reviewing profit and loss data, you may take a virtual visit to the Louvre. Your trip may require you to pay a royalty payment equivalent to one-third of a penny to Bill Gates or someone of equal foresight who has purchased the virtual reality rights to tour the museum. While you are wondering whether the Mona Lisa had trouble with her teeth, your computer could be downloading S.I. Seung's translation of The Romance of the Western Chamber. At times of your choosing, your personal communication system will read the text aloud like a bard of old. Multitasking programs will allow you to perform many functions simultaneously. Shopping for Jurisdictions on the Net If you are inspired by your dose of the classics, you can organize a virtual corporation to market dramatic productions of famous literature for viewing through three-dimensional retinal display. Instead of being projected into the air, the images will be projected directly onto the retinas of viewers with low-energy lasers fluctuating 50,000 times a second. This technology, already under development by Microvision of Seattle, Washington, will allow many persons who are legally blind to see. Before undertaking the project, you could instruct your digital assistant to canvas the current contract offers of protection for manufacturing facilities in Malaysia, China, Peru, Brazil, and the Czech Republic. When you pick a location, you will be able to have your company incorporated in one hour in the Bahamas, courtesy of the St. George's Trust Company. Your instructions will place all the company's liquid assets in a cyber account in a cyber bank that is domiciled simultaneously in Newfoundland, the Cayman Islands, Uruguay, Argentina, and Liechtenstein. If any of the jurisdictions attempt to withdraw operating authority or seize the assets of depositors, the assets will automatically be transferred to another jurisdiction at the speed of light. Qualitative Advances Many of the transactions you soon will be able to perform in cyberspace would have been impossible in the industrial age, and not simply because they cross a language barrier. Sending your digital assistants to locate untranslated articles published in Hungarian scientific journals is qualitatively different from talking to a librarian. Sitting in on an Oxford tutorial from a distance of 5,000 miles is not the same as taking the tutorial when you are sleeping within six miles of Carfax. And playing the roulette wheel at the Hotel de Paris Monte Carlo is a novel experience when you can do it via virtual reality from a party at Punta del Este, Uruguay. A Cyber Visit to the Cyber Doctor In short order, Faster than many experts now think possible, activities will migrate into the cyber economy that combine technologies in novel ways to transcend the tyranny of place and the antiquated institutions of the industrial economy. One day soon, if you have a stomachache, you will be able to consult a digital doctor, an expert system with an encyclopedic knowledge of symptoms, maladies, and antidotes. It will access your medical history in encrypted form, 
Ask whether your pain happens after eating or before meals, whether it is sharp or dull, persistent or episodic. Whatever questions doctors ask, the digital doctor will ask. It may determine that you drink too much wine or not enough. You may be referred to a cyber specialist. If you need an operation, a cyber surgeon in Bermuda may perform the operation long distance with the aid of specialized equipment that performs micro-incisions. Life and Death Information Processing This may sound like science fiction, but many of the components of cybersurgery are already in place. Others will be functional by the time you listen to this book. General Electric has introduced a new magnetic resonance treatment machine, MRT, into 15 hospitals around the world. The machine is expected to have a three-year research and development phase, but after that it is likely to spread rapidly and become a norm for many types of surgery. It is one example, but a good one, of the way in which technology is changing society. Most of us are familiar with magnetic resonance imaging, MRI machines, in which magnetic resonance techniques are used to provide doctors with soft tissue images for diagnostic purposes. They provide better images of soft tissues than x-rays or ultrasound and have become an essential part of modern diagnostic techniques, particularly in cancers. They have, however, two significant limitations at present. The tube does not allow free access to the patient. The machines are of limited power. Cybersurgery General Electric has redesigned magnetic resonance machines so that they can be used for treatment as well as diagnosis. The power has been upped five times. The tube has, in effect, been cut in two, so the patient will lie between two donut-shaped units rather than being fully enclosed. Instead of taking an image and then performing surgery in the light of that image, the surgeon will be able to see what he is doing as he does it. MRT will be combined with non-invasive or less invasive surgery using microtechniques. Instead of having to make large incisions with scalpels, the surgeon will make micro-incisions with probes and will be able to see what the probes reveal as he operates. He will perform the surgery from the image rather than by looking directly into the body. In principle, the probes will be operable from a distance, they will be able to destroy tumors with laser or cryogenic heating or freezing, devices of great precision. This will permit operations that are now impossible, particularly in neurosurgery, where tumors often lie very close to essential parts of the brain. It will also permit repeated operations, when the trauma of the traditional surgical operation cannot be repeated without unacceptable damage. Some researchers believe that the knife for soft tissue surgery may be looked back on as an obsolete relic by 2010. A lot of fear and much of the aftershock will be taken out of surgery, if that is true. Obviously, this is very good news for the patient. Operations which now take hours to perform and have to be followed by days or weeks in the hospital will take only half an hour and may not require hospitalization at all. Indeed, the surgeon and the patient may never even be in the same room. But what will this do to hospitals and surgeons? Fewer microsurgeons doing more. There will be a revolution in surgery. 
In training, a third of young surgeons have failed to acquire the skills needed for microsurgery. A third are just able to do it, and a third become excellent. Similar proportions are found in conversion courses for senior surgeons. Fewer surgeons will be able to carry out more operations in a shorter time. It is likely that healthcare insurers and individuals seeking surgery will insist on outcome statistics for each surgeon, which will vary rather widely. Patients will want to go to surgeons who produce the best results, particularly if their conditions are life-threatening. In some cases, the best surgeons may operate long distance. They may perform the whole operation from another jurisdiction where taxes are lower and courts do not honor exorbitant malpractice claims. Digital Lawyers Before agreeing to perform an operation, the skilled surgeon will probably call upon a digital lawyer to draft an instant contract that specifies and limits liability based upon the size and characteristics of the tumor revealed in images displayed by the magnetic resonance machine. Digital lawyers will be information retrieval systems that automate selection of contract provisions, employing artificial intelligence processes such as neural networks to customize private contracts to meet transnational legal conditions. Participants in most high-value or important transactions will not only shop for suitable partners with whom to conduct a business, they will also shop for a suitable domicile for their transactions. Emergency Consultation To continue the example of cybersurgery, the technology of the information age will place a premium on the highest skills in surgery, as it will in almost every endeavor. Patients have been willing to pay such a premium for as long as there have been knives, but limits on information and the difficulty of shopping for surgeons in an emergency in any given locale made the market for surgery a very imperfect one. It will be less imperfect in the information age. A patient facing the need for an operation in 24 hours, or perhaps even 45 minutes, could deputize digital assistants to locate the top 10 surgeons worldwide available to perform such a task remotely, review their success rates in similar cases, and solicit offers for their particular case from corresponding digital servants. All of this could be canvassed in a matter of moments. As a consequence, the most favored 10% of surgeons will have a far larger share in the global market for surgery. The MRT machine, plus microsurgery techniques, will raise the premium for their work. Surgeons with less skill will focus on residual local markets. This life-and-death example helps suggest some of the revolutionary consequences of the liberation of economies from the tyranny of place. Someone may object that General Electric's MRT machine was not meant to be employed long distance. Perhaps, but this misses the point. It, or some equipment like it, soon will be. When operations are better performed by surgeons watching a screen than looking at the patient directly, it will matter less than we now suppose where the surgeon and his screen are located. Increasing numbers of services are destined to be reconfigured to reflect the fact that information technology allows persons anywhere on the globe to interact in even so delicate a matter as surgery. In activities that require less precise equipment and involve lower risks of failure, the cyber economy will flourish even more rapidly.
The financial policy of the welfare state requires that there be no way for the owners of wealth to protect themselves. Alan Greenspan The Devaluation of Compulsion In almost every competitive area, including most of the world's multi-trillion dollar investment activity, the migration of transactions into cyberspace will be driven by an almost hydraulic pressure, the impetus to avoid predatory taxation, including the tax that inflation places upon everyone who holds his wealth in a national currency. Escaping the Protection Racket you do not need to think long about the megapolitics of the information age to realize that predatory taxes and inflation of the kind imposed as a matter of right by the wealthiest industrial countries upon their citizens will be preposterously uncompetitive on the new frontier of cyberspace. Soon after the turn of the millennium, anyone who pays income taxes at rates currently imposed will be doing so out of choice. As Frederick C. Lane pointed out, History shows that on the frontiers and on the high seas, where no one had an enduring monopoly in the use of violence, merchants avoided payment of exactions which were so high that protection could be obtained more cheaply by other means. The cyber economy provides just such an alternative. No government will be able to monopolize it, and the information technologies comprised by it will provide cheaper and more effective protection for financial assets than most governments ever had reason to provide. The Black Magic of Compound Interest Remember, each $5,000 of annual tax payments paid over 40 years slashes your net worth by $2.2 million assuming you could realize just a 10% return on your capital. At a 20% return, the compound loss balloons to about $44 million. For high-income earners in a high-tax country, the cumulative losses from predatory taxation over a lifetime are staggering. Most will lose more than they ever had. This sounds impossible, but the mathematics are clear. It is something that you can confirm for yourself with a pocket calculator. The top 1% of taxpayers in the United States pay an average of more than $125,000 in federal income taxes annually. For a fraction of that amount, $45,000 a year, one would be welcome to live under a private tax treaty in Switzerland and enjoy law and order provided by what is arguably the most honest police and judicial system in the world. From this perspective, the additional $80,000 a year of income tax paid above that generous level might well be classified as tribute or plunder. $45,000 is certainly a substantial payment toward the maintenance of law and order, considering that police protection is meant to be a public good. In theory, public goods can be extended to additional users at a marginal cost of zero. The Swiss are glad to have you pay a negotiated fixed tax of $45,000, 50,000 Swiss francs, per year because they make an annual profit of $45,000 on every millionaire who signs up.